Part Eleven of The Ultimate Weapon by John Campbell, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Eleven Buck Kendall entered the communications room rather furtively. He hated the place. Cole was there, and McLaurin. Mac was looking tired and drawn, Cole not so tired, but equally drawn. The signals were coming through fairly well, because most of the disturbance was rising where the signals rose, and all the disturbance practically was magnetic rather than electric. "'Dean Moore is sending Buck,' McLaurin said as he entered. "'They're down to the last fifty-five tons. They'll have more time now. A rest while Phobos sinks. Mars Center has another two hundred and fifty tons, but it's just a question of time. Have you any hope to offer?' No, said Kendall, in a strained voice. But, Mac, I don't think men like those are afraid to die. It's dying uselessly, they fear. Tell them, uh, tell them they've defended not alone Mars, but all the system in holding up the strangers on Mars. We here on Luna have been safer because of them. And tell, Mac, tell them that in the meantime, while they defended us and gave us time to work, we have begun to see the trail that will lead to victory. "'You have?' gasped McLaurin. "'No, but they will never know.' Kendall left hastily. He went and stood moodily looking at the calculator machines, the calculator machines that refused to give the answers he sought. No matter how he might modify that original idea of his, no matter what different line of attack he might try in solving the problems of space and matter, while he used a system he knew was right, the answer came down to that deadly, hope-lasting expression that meant only uncertain. Even Buck was beginning to feel uncertain under that constant crushing of hope. Uncertainty! Uncertainty was eating into him, and destroying— From the communications room came the hum and drive of the great sender flashing its message across seventy-two millions of miles of nothing. Buck, Kendall, says— he has learned something that will lead to victory while you held back the— Kendall switched on a noisy humming fan viciously. The two intelligible signals were drowned in its sound. And tell them to destroy the apparatus before the last of the power is gone, McLaurin ordered softly. The men in Dean Morb Station did slightly better than that. Gradually they cut down their magnetic shield, and some of the magnetic bombs tore and twisted viciously at the heavy metal walls. The thin atmosphere of Mars leaked in. Grimly the men waited. Atomic bombs are ships to investigate. It did not matter much to them personally. Garest Gakay smiled with his old vigor as he ordered one of the great interstellar ships to land beside the powerless station, approaching from such an angle that the still active Mars center station could not attack. One of the fleet of Phobos rose and circled about the planet, and settled gracefully beside the station. For half an hour it lay there quietly, waiting and watching. Then the crew of two dozen Mirans started across the dry, crumbly powder of Mars sand toward the fort. Simultaneously almost, three things happened. A three-foot UV beam wiped out the advancing party. 
A pair of fifteen-foot beams cut a great gaping hole in the wall of the interstellar ship as it darted up like a startled quail, its weapons roaring defiance only to fall back severely wounded. And the radio messages pounded out to Earth the first description of the Miron people. Methodically the men in Demor Station used all but one ton of their power to completely and forever wreck and destroy the interstellar cripple that floundered for a few moments on the sands a bare mile away. Presently, before Dean Moore was through with it, the atomic bombs stopped coming, and the atomic shells. The magnetic shield that had been re-established for the few minutes of this last dying sting fell. Deanmore Station vanished in a sudden, colossal tongue of blue-green light as the ton of atomically distorted mercury was exploded by a projector beam turned on the tank. It was long gone when the first atomic bombs and magnetic bombs dropped from Phobos reached the spot, and only hot rock and broken metal remained. Mars Center failed, in fact, the next time Phobos rode high over it. The apparatus here had been carefully destroyed by technicians with a view of making it indecipherable, but the Mirans made it even more certain, for no ship settled here to investigate, but a stream of atomic bombs that lasted for over an hour and churned the rock to dust and the dust to molten lava, in which pools of fused tungsten beryllium alloy bubbled slowly and sank. Ah, Jarth, they are a brave race. Whatever we may say of their queer shape," sighed Gerest Gakay, as the last of the Mars Center sank in bubbling lava. They stung as they died. For some minutes he was silent. "'We must move on,' he said at length. "'I have been thinking, and it seems best that a few ships land here and establish a fort, while some twenty move on to the satellite of the third planet and destroy the fort there. We cannot operate against the planet while that hangs above us. Seven ships settled to Mars while the fleet came up from Jupiter to join with Gerest Gakay's flight of ships on its way to Luna. An automatically controlled ship was sent ahead and began the bombardment. It approached slowly and was not destroyed by the UV beams till it had come to within forty thousand miles of the fort. At sixty thousand, Gerest Kakei stationed his fleet and returned to 150,000 immediately as the titanic UV beams of the lunar fort stretched out to their maximum range. The focus made a difference. One ship started limping back to Jupiter in tow of a second, while the rest began the slow, methodical work of wearing down the defenses of the lunar fort. Kendall looked out at the magnificent display of clashing, warring energies, the great whirling spheres and disks of opalescent flame, and turned away sadly. The men at Demor must have watched that for days, and at Mars Center. "'How long can we hold out?' asked McLaurin. Three weeks or so at the present rate. That's a long time, really, and we can escape if we want to. The UV beams here have a greater range than any weapon the strangers have, and with Earth so near, oh, we could escape. Little good. What are you going to do?" "'I,' said Buck Kendall, suddenly savage, "'am going to consign all the math machines in the universe to eternal damnation, 
and go ahead and build a machine anyway. I know that thing ought to be right. The math's wrong. There is no other thing to try? A billion others. I don't know how many others. We ought to get atomic energy somehow. But that thing infuriates me. A hundred things that math has predicted that I have checked by experiment. Simple little things. But when I carry it through to the point where I can get something useful, it wriggles off into uncertainty. Kendall stalked off to the laboratory. Devon was there working over the calculus machines, and Kendall called him angrily. Then, more apologetic, he explained it was anger at himself. Devon, I'm going to make that thing if it blows up and kills me. I'm going to make that thing if this whole fort blows up and kills me. That math has blown up in my face for four solid months and half killed me, so I'm going to kill it. Come on, we'll make that damned junk. Angrily, furiously, Kendall drove his helpers to the task. He had worked out the apparatus and plan a dozen times, and now he had the plans turned into patterns, the patterns into metal. Saucily, the S. Doradus made the trip to and from Earth with patterns and with metal, with supplies and with apparatus. But she had to dodge and fight every inch of the way as the Mirren ships swooped down angrily at her. A fighting craft could get through when the Miron fleet was withdrawn to some distance, but the Mirons were careful that no heavy-loaded freighter bearing power supply should get through. And Garest Gakay waited off Luna in his great ship, and watched the steady streams of magnetic bombs exploding on the magnetic shield of the lunar fort. Presently more ships came up and added their power to the attack, for here the photocell banks could gather tremendous energy and Garest Kakei knew he would need to overcome this and drain the accumulated power. Garest Kakei felt certain if he could once crack this nut, break down Earth, he would have the system. This was the home planet. If this fell, then the two others would follow easily, despite the fact that the few forts on the innermost planet, Mercury, could gather energy from the sun at a rate greater than their ships could generate. It took Kendall two weeks and three days to set up his preliminary apparatus. They had power for perhaps four days more, thanks to the fact that the long lunar day had begun shortly after Garest Gakay's impatient attack had started. Also the S. Doratus had brought in several hundred tons of charged mercury on each trip, though this was of no great quantity individually. It had mounted up in the ten trips she had made. The Cephid, her sister ship, had gone along on seven of the trips and added to the total. But at length the apparatus was set up. It was peculiar-looking, and it employed a great deal of power, nearly as much as a UV beam, in fact. McLaurin looked at it skeptically toward the last, and asked Buck, "'What do you expect it to do?' "'I am,' said Kendall sourly, "'uncertain. The result will be uncertainty itself.' which, considering things, was a surprisingly accurate statement. Kendall gave the exact answer. He meant to give an ironic comment, for the mathematics had been perfectly correct. Only Buck Kendall misinterpreted the answer. "'I followed the math with mechanism all the way through,' he explained, "'and I'm putting power into it. That's all I know. 
Somewhere, by the laws of cause and effect, this power must show itself again, despite what the damn math says. And in that, of course, Kendall was wrong, because the laws of cause and effect didn't hold in what he was doing now. "'Do you want to watch?' he asked at length. "'I'm all set to try it.' "'I suppose I may as well,' McLaurin smiled. "'In our close-knit little community the fate of one is of interest to all. If it's going to blow up, I might as well be here, and if it isn't, I want to be.' Kendall smiled appreciatively and replied, "'Let it be on thy own head. Here she goes.' He walked over to the power board and took command. Devon and a squad of other scientists were seated about the room with every conceivable type and combination of apparatus. Kendall wanted to see what this was doing. "'Tubes,' he called. "'Circuits A and D. Tie-ends.' He stopped. The preliminary switches in. "'Main circuit coming.' With a jerk he threw over the last contact. A heavy relay thudded solidly. The hum of a straining atostor, then— an electric motor, humming smoothly, stopped with a jerk. "'This,' it remarked in a deep, throaty voice, "'is probably the last stand of humanity.' The galvanometer before which Devon was seated apparently agreed. In a rather high-pitched voice it pointed out that, "'If the lunar fort falls, the earth—' It stopped abruptly, and an electroscope beside Douglas took up the thread in a high, shrill voice, rather slurred. "'We'll be directly attacked.' "'This,' resumed the motor in a hoarse voice, "'will certainly mean the end of humanity.' The motor gave up the discourse and hummed violently into action, in reverse. "'My God!' Kendall pulled the switch open with a sagging jaw and staring eyes. The men in the room burst into sudden, startled exclamations. Kendall didn't give them time. His jaw snapped shut, and a blazing light of wondrous joy shone in his eyes. He instantly threw the switch in again. Again the humming atoster, the strain. Slowly Devon lifted from his seat, with thrashing arms and startled, staring eyes. He drifted gently across the room. Abruptly he fell to the floor, unhurt by the light lunar gravity. "'I advise,' said the motor in a grumbling voice, "'an immediate exodus.' It stopped speaking, and practiced what it preached. It was a fifty-horse motor generator on a five-ton tungsten beryllium base. But it rose abruptly, spun rapidly about an axis at right angles to the axis of its armature, and stopped as suddenly. In mid-air it continued its interrupted lecture. Mercury, therefore, is the destination I would advise. Their power is sufficient for all machines. Gently it inverted itself and settled to the middle of the floor. Kendall instantly cut the switch. The relay did not chunk open. It refused to obey. Settled in the middle of the floor now, torn loose from its power leads, the motor generator began turning. It turned faster and faster. It was shrilling in a thin scream of terrific speed, 
a speed that should have torn its windings to fragments under the lash of centrifugal force. Contentedly it said throatily, Settled. The galvanometer spoke again in its peculiar harsh voice. Therefore move. Abruptly, without apparent reason, the stubborn relay clicked open. The shrilly screaming motor stopped dead instantly, as though it had had no real momentum or had been inertialess. Startled, white-faced men looked at Kendall. Buck's eyes were shining with an unholy glee. Uncertainty! he shouted. Uncertainty! 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 You fools, don't you see it? All the math, it said uncertainty. Man! Man, we've got just that uncertainty. You're crazy, gasped McLaurin. I'm crazy. Everything's gone crazy. Kendall roared with sudden joyous laughter. Absolutely. Everything's gone crazy. The laws of nature break down. Heisenberg's principles showed that the law of cause and effect weren't absolute. We've made them absolutely uncertain. But motors talking? Instruments giving lectures? Certainly, or rather uncertainly. Anything, absolutely anything. The destruction of the laws of gravity, freedom from inertia. Why, merely picking up a radio lecture is nothing. Suddenly, abruptly, a thousand questions poured in on him. Jubilantly, he answered what he could, told what he thought, and then brought order. The battle's still on, men. We've got to find out how to use this. Now we've got it. I have an idea that there's a lot more. I know what I'll get this time. Now help me remake the apparatus so we don't broadcast the thing. At once, ten times the former pace, work was done. On the radio, news was sent out that Kendall was on the right track after all. In two hours the apparatus had been vastly altered. It was in the final stage, and an entirely different sort of field set up. Again they watched as Buck applied the power. The atoster hummed, but no strange tricks of matter happened this time. The more concentrated, altered field was, as Buck was to find out later, uncertainty of the second degree. It was molecular uncertainty. In a field a foot and a half in diameter, Buck saw the thing created and suddenly a brilliant green-blue flame shot up, and a great dark cloud of terrible red-brown deadly vapor. Then, an instant later, Kendall had opened the relay. Gasping, the men ran from the laboratory, shutting the deadly fumes in. In 204, gasped Morton, the chemist, as they reached safely. It's exothermic, but it formed there. In that instant, Kendall grasped the meaning the choking fumes carried. Molecular uncertainty, he decided. We're going back. We're getting there. He altered the apparatus again, adding another atoster in series, reduced the size of his sphere of forces, of strange chaos of uncertainty. Within, little was certain. Without, the laws of nature applied as ever. Again the apparatus was started, cautiously this time. Only a strange jumbled ionization appeared this time. Then a slow rising blue flame began to creep up and burn hot and blue. 
Buck looked at it for a moment. Then his face grew tense and thoughtful. Devon, give me a half-dollar. Blankly, Devon reached in his pocket and handed over the metal disc. Cautiously, Buck Kendall tossed it toward the sphere of force. Instantly there was a flash of flame, soundless and soft-colored. Then the silver disc was outlined in light, and swiftly, inevitably, crumbling into dust so fine only a blue haze appeared. In less than two seconds the metal was gone. Only the dense blue fog remained. Then this began to go, and the leaping blue flame grew taller and stronger. We're on the track. I'm going to stop here and calculate. Bring the data. Kendall shut off the machine and went to the calculation room. Swiftly he selected already prepared graphs, graphs of the math he had worked on. Devon came soon, and others. They assembled the data, and with tables and arithmetic machines turned it into graphs. Then all these graphs were fed into the machine. There were curves and sine curves, abrupt breaking lines, but the answer that came when all were compounded was a perfect diagram of a flight of four steps, descending in unequal treads to zero. Kendall looked at it for long minutes. That, he said at length, is what I expected. There are four degrees of uncertainty. We generated uncertainty of the first degree, mass uncertainty, when we started. That, as here shown, takes little energy concentration. Then we increased the energy concentration and got uncertainty of the second degree, molecular uncertainty. Then I added more power and reduced the field and got uncertainty of the third degree, atomic uncertainty. There is uncertainty of the fourth degree. It is barely attainable with our atostors. It is utter uncertainty. In the first degree the laws of mass action fail, the great broad-breaching laws. In the second degree the laws of the molecules, a finer organization, break down, and anything can happen in chemistry. In the third degree the laws of atomic physics break down slowly. The atom is tough. It is very compact, and we just barely attain the concentration needed with that apparatus. But in the third degree, when the atomic laws break down into utter uncertainty, the atoms break, and only hydrogen can exist. That was the blue flame. But the fourth degree, there is no law whatsoever. Nothing in all the universe can exist. It means the utter destruction and release of the energy of matter. Kendall paused for a moment. We have won with this. We need only make up this apparatus and maybe make it into a weapon. You know, in the fourth degree, nothing in all the universe could resist, deflect, or control it if launched freely and self-maintaining. I think that might be done. You see, no law affects it, for it breaks down the law. Magnetism cannot attract or repel it, because magnetic fields cannot exist. There is no law of magnetic force where this field is. And you know, Devon, how I have analyzed and duplicated their magnetic ball fields. This should be capable of formation into a ball field. We need only make it up now. We will install it on the S. Doradus and the Cepid as a weapon. We need only install it as an energy source here. Let us start. End of part 11